The Demand for Freedom from Testing When God confronted Adam with his sin, Adam's immediate response was to blame God. The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. Genesis 3.12 Adam and Eve clearly resented the fact that they had been put to the test. The only kind of paradise, indeed the only kind of world acceptable to them, was a world without problems and with no necessity for decisions. However good Eden was, the fact that a tree was barred from them, Genesis 2.17, and that eating thereof had deadly consequences, was in their eyes unfair of God. For man, the ideal world is a world without problems and without any moral testing. Quite obviously, God does not agree. The world is full of moral decisions and is a steady round of moral responsibility. Responsibility is as much a part of man's daily life as the air he breathes, but man resents the fact of responsibility. Rollo May has pointed out that every decision to have a baby or not to have one involves responsibility and therefore hidden guilt for modern man. The increased availability of various methods of birth control has only increased the extent of responsibility. For the more man by science extends his powers of dominion and control, the more he increases his areas of responsibility and potential guilt. As a result, modern man has intensified his sense of guilt. May observes. There is also the dilemma of personal responsibility which comes from the freedom to choose to have a baby or not. It has been possible to plan babies for the last four decades, and though we have acted upon that power, we have never accepted the psychological and personal responsibility for it. Our blithe evasion of that issue comes out in the guilt we feel as a whole society toward our children. We do everything for them. We cater to their development and their whims. We count it a sign of our broad-mindedness and virtue that we give in to them on every moral issue, and now on marijuana, so that the poor children have an impossible time trying to find something about these always-giving-in parents against which they can revolt. When they go away, we say, have a good time and we get worried if they don't have a good time and worried if they have too good a time. And all the while, we are secretly envious of them and their youth and resentful at how good they have it compared with how hard we had it. Through all of this treating our young like little royalty heirs apparent to heavens know what, we are the maids-in-waiting, chauffeurs, cooks, nurses, bottomless money bags, home teachers, camp leaders, until it is no wonder our children stand up and scream, for heaven's sake, leave us alone. And that is the biggest threat of all to us, for we are filled with some nameless, pervasive guilt about our children and can't let go. And the guilt we are expiating is not about some specific thing we did or didn't do in rearing them. It is about the basic fact of having children in the first place. For no longer does God decide we are to have children. We do. And who has even begun to comprehend the meaning of that tremendous fact? Or imagine the couples, and with the need for population control there will be many, who will plan to have only one baby. Consider the tremendous psychic weight this poor infant will have to carry. As we see in our therapy, particularly with professional people who have had their one child, there is great temptation to overprotect the infant. When he calls, the parents run. When he whimpers, they are abashed. When he is sick, they are guilty. When he doesn't sleep, they look as though they are going to have nervous breakdowns. The infant becomes a little dictator by virtue of the situation he is born into, and couldn't be anything else if he wanted to. 
And there is, of course, the always complicating and contradictory fact that all this attention actually amounts to a considerable curtailing of the child's freedom. And he must, like a prince born into a royal family, carry a weight for which children were never made. May's comments can be criticized at a number of points. Mainly, guilt feelings are brought to bear by man on his every relationship, and as a result, appear in his parenthood. The guilty parents he describes brought an already existing guilt to parenthood. Their essential sin is to attempt to be their own god, and yet to have no consequences to their acts. As a result, since all acts are consequential, their parenthood becomes to them not a joy, but a constant and guilty burden. A world of causality and consequences haunts them. Man the sinner wants to be God in a world without any consequences, guilt, sickness, or death. He dreams of creating such a world, and if he cannot have it, at least to provide it for his children. A telling little tale sums up this attitude. They tell the story of the Cadillac that drove up to the Plaza Hotel. The chauffeur helped the mother out. Then the 26 pieces of matched luggage. In the back of the car, a boy was sitting in a wheelchair. As he was being wheeled down the special ramp and into the hotel, the manager murmured a few discreet words of sympathy to the mother. Why, what's wrong? she demanded. Your son not being able to walk, he said. Of course he can walk. Thank God he doesn't have to. Jane O'Reilly gives some interesting examples of parental attempts to spare children all problems and to cater to their whims. One mother cooks a dinner nightly for her three younger children and a separate dinner for her husband. Her 19-year-old son lives in his upstairs bedroom with a girlfriend, and the mother prepares a special vegetarian dinner on request for them. Comments Mrs. O'Reilly. I felt so sorry for my cousin, who arrived in his $4,000 car under terrible strain, a complete failure who hadn't been admitted to college anywhere. When I suggested that he leave home and get a job, he said he couldn't because, what about the car and my mother's credit card? The price of independence came too high. And then came a moment of enlightenment. I asked him to help me peel potatoes. I can't, he said definitely. I don't know how. These kids don't know how to peel potatoes, or wipe their noses, or tie their shoes. But those are minor skills quickly learned. The only problem is to get out of the house where they will be free to learn. Because at home, mom and dad are still raising children instead of adults. Turning on the bathwater, organizing the little league games, driving the kids to school, offering options and instant gratification, removing frustrations, never leaving their children alone, and in a thousand little ways paralyzing them, proving that they, the parents, are needed. Because who needs the parents either, aside from their kids? The child-centered society, where the children define and justify the parents' lives, especially mothers. A good person is a good mother. A bad person is a failure whose child runs away. The problem, however, goes beyond the rearing of children. Every attempt is made to turn the whole of society and the political order into one in which responsibility is eliminated, guilt is abolished, and man as God enjoys a continual paradise. This is the goal of humanistic politics, education, religion, and science. In the communist empire, a major attempt is being made to develop a vaccine against syphilis, not merely as a medical goal, but a social one. Diseases of every sort are the targets of intensive attention, not merely in the older medical sense, but as a part of a messianic dream of abolishing problems and responsibility. 
The same impulse has led to wars on poverty, war against war, and so on. The goal is a new paradise, with no tree of testing in it, and no tempter. The reality, of course, is that this is precisely the tempter's dream, a world without God, responsibility, or guilt. The problems relative to guilt are referred to another source, so that no embarrassing questions about God and sin be raised. Thus, Menninger rejected the term psychopathic personality because, among other things, it had a background of reference to the unconscious sense of guilt and the resulting self-punishment, which I do not think are the most important elements in the condition. Guilt is thus pushed into the background. Guilt does come to the foreground of Menninger's mind in a curious comment on Freud and his Moses and monotheism. Menninger said, Freud was our Moses, and like the children of Israel, we feel guilty in connection with his death, no matter how much we consciously regret it, and despite the fact that we can be charged with no responsibility for it. Here is a remarkable fact, that Menninger should feel guilt over the death of Freud, who died in old age of cancer. The key is the resentment at Freud's eminence. Menninger wrote, Our tendency as analysts is to react to our guilt by attacks upon one another. From our own science, we know that the atonement often repeats the crime. Those who feel unable to atone for their sense of guilt may feel impelled to make overt attacks upon some symbol of the leader, his memory, his theory, his principles, or other followers, in self-justification. One recalls the querulous cry of a little man 40 years ago, Must I stand always in Freud's shadow? Without true atonement, there is thus a renewed attack on others and an increased guilt. Menninger added with respect to Freud, These things we should all face. Our attitude toward Freud should certainly not be a religious one. Superstitious religion is based on the theory that men were made by a god in his own image. To recognize that man creates his god as the ideal of a benign father and with the highest aspirations of human thought is to exemplify the spirit of a civilized, intelligent religion not incompatible with rigorous scientific discipline. This spirit should determine our feelings towards Freud. The temptation to abandon the Elohim concepts of single-heartedness, loyalty, affection, and peaceful cooperation for polytheistic, yavistic concepts of conflict is to take flight from our unconscious guilt feelings in the vain illusion that by sufficient heterodoxy and a sufficient plurality of loyalties, one can avoid the penalties of patricide without incurring the penalties of faithlessness. Freud was not our god. He was our Moses. But in his death, we did not lose our leader. No matter how much more we learn, Freud will always be our leader, as Galileo will always be the leader of astronomers and Newton of physicists. His physical presence was not the important thing. Freud's principles, Freud's integrity, Freud's honesty, and above all, Freud's discoveries, these are still with us. They will always be with us. It is not only our privilege to add to his discoveries, it is our duty. The additions to Freud's discoveries must be made without patricide, without undue attention to Freud's errors, out of jealousy in an effort to supplant him, Manager held. His plea, in an address to the American Psychoanalytic Association, 1942, was for loyalty to one another. But loyalty to Freud should have made it clear to Menninger how impotent such a rationalistic plea is against the deeply rooted guilt of man. For Menninger, man creates his god. The god he creates cannot remove man's guilt, however. 
Without atonement, man only becomes more aggressive or more self-destructive. Still, Menninger hopes that loyalty will somehow cure the situation, and he thereby becomes guilty of superstitious faith. Psychoanalysts feel guilty about Freud's death. This is itself an excellent example of what Menninger himself described as the failure to distinguish between guilt and a sense of guilt, and between a sense of guilt related to actual offenses and a sense of guilt related to imaginary offenses. Menninger, to the contrary, there is no relief for a sense of guilt over imaginary offenses until the person faces up to the suppressed and evaded guilt, his sin against God and God's law. When man imagines an offense, and when man creates a displaced sense of guilt, it is an act of sin, whereby, plain at God, he attempts to reduce reality to aspects of his imagination, so that he might dispose of reality at will. A sense of guilt is preferred to real and acknowledged guilt, and imaginary offenses to real offenses, because it is the real world of testing and sin which is resented. When Adam said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat, Genesis 3.12, he was in the process of fleeing from reality to imagination. Implicit in his statement was a denial of actual guilt and of responsibility. Explicit was his indictment of Eve and of God. Here, the inescapable conflict of guilt becomes apparent. By his excuse, Adam blamed God and Eve and was revealing hostility towards both. Guilt leads to warfare against God and conflict with men. Seeking to escape from testing into a world without problems, the sinner instead creates a world of continual problems and deep-seated conflicts. His dream of Eden becomes a nightmare and an endless testing, in which he is endlessly found wanting. By his denial of guilt and responsibility, the sinner only increases his guilt and underscores the requirement to be responsible. Apart from regeneration, there is no escape for the guilty man. <laughs>